0: This all began with an ill-planned coup. Six generals dead. 500,000 communists murdered in retaliation. In October of 1965, a small group within the Indonesian Communist Party, known as the PKI, rose up in a power grab at a time of political instability. In spite of being the largest communist party dominating Indonesia, it was vulnerable to repression. Hence, due to its poor organisation and lack of military support, General Suato of the military was able to quash it within 24 hours. Not only was Suato able to engineer a power grab using the failed coup to spread ideas of communist phobia, he also authorised and coordinated a genocide on an unimaginable scale. In order to solidify his base of power, he utilised the service of freemen, gangsters and vigilantes to murder more than 500,000 communists, leaving his claim uncontested. Although a political manoeuvre, this sparked a whole societal upheaval resulting in the most grotesque and inhumane treatment of those cast out of society. Freeman committed incomprehensibly horrific crimes, burning villages and raping legions of vulnerable women, and finding new and entertaining ways to commit murder on an industrial scale. Without a shadow of a doubt, such crimes became banal. The norm? And this is a bleak, bleak comment on the whole of humanity. How can openly acknowledged crimes go unpunished and a regime of impunity prevail, placing the actors in positions of privilege, benefit and veneration? How can punishment for such grave crimes, and by extension, feelings of guilt, culpability and responsibility be evaded? Surely there must be some apparatus with which such actions can be kept in check. Surely society in these cases should cast shame, enforce a moral reckoning and punish severely those perpetrators who commit such grave crimes against humanity in order to express their societal guilt. This is a concept I will now examine in the next section. Welcome to my podcast on Indonesia, the guilt of a nation seeping through the cracks of impunity and denial. Before discussing the emotion of guilt, it is important we preface this with an insight into human psychology. Typically, when people identify with the group responsible for committing atrocities, they avoid guilt through two ways. Legitimization or silence. They either choose to erect a wall of silence around the past with its negative connotations being covered by state propaganda and censorship. Or they choose to blame the victims, justifying their actions to dispel any possible guilt. One example is the psychology of the Nazis during the Holocaust. For them, their ideology that Jews were subhuman and that an ethnic cleansing was done as service eliminated much of their guilt. What is interesting here is that in both scenarios, the idea of a wrong being committed is markedly absent. By contrast, in the case of Indonesia, the gravity of the crimes committed are not only openly acknowledged but proudly praised, the perpetrators revered as saviours of the motherland. Why is this the case? I propose that it all comes down to the regime of impunity that prevails, even now, 55 years after the genocide. The United Nations defines impunity as the impossibility, de jure or de facto, of bringing perpetrators of violations to account, since they are not subject to any inquiry that might lead to their being accused, arrested, tried and, if found guilty, sentenced to appropriate penalties and to making reparations to their victims. To this day, no one has been held accountable for the killings of the past. Not only are victims forced to live alongside perpetrators, terrorised into silence, but those same people are beneficiaries of power. Countless politicians and gangsters responsible for crimes that require some sort of justice and reconciliation process are currently profiting off of them, enjoying privileges when instead they should be expressing some form of their guilt. Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing is a documentary in which former death squad leaders who have been in power ever since the genocide enact their supposed past. Through these dramatizations, or phantasmagorical reenactments inspired by westerns, we see the veil of lies and terror woven by society being lifted, as the main character goes through an emotionally charged journey and recognizes the truth behind his actions. The film raises what political theorist Robert Meister calls the questions of impunity and disclosure, and is an intervention in itself, reflecting on existing power structures and political complacency. The film's official trailer prompts its audience with the overlaid text, why have they never been punished, suggesting that lack of accountability is a significant and framing theme. The film penetrates the entrenched impunity enjoyed by the perpetrators, provoking a psychological transition in its subjects and a broader political recognition of a disavowed past. In contemporary Indonesia, where many of the same perpetrators have links to state power and are treated as heroic figures, the discourse of ending impunity is largely absent. As one of the film's subjects maintains, war crimes are defined by the winners. I'm a winner, so I can make my own definition. This notion of a victor's justice bleeds through aptly and shows the absence of a framework instilling societal guilt in order to find reconciliation. Rather than being punished, such perpetrators are paraded around on national television as heroes, where they showcase the tools they use to murder more efficiently. Such scenes explain why individual guilt is lacking in this society. On a macrocosmic level, The lack of institutional mechanisms, such as courts and truth commissions, that inscribe and enforce the redress of past wrongs through some form of punishment, allows for perpetrators to feel as if they have committed no wrong. Without an external apportionment, it is easier to forego internal feelings of guilt, individually experienced, and this is something seen firsthand in the journey of Anwar Congo a character who undergoes a moral awakening of sorts. From boasting about his crimes and the privileges he has experienced to being physically sickened at the thought of them following a scene where he acts as a victim, we witness some form of guilt erupt within him. His moral journey and this notion of personal guilt are both central to this discussion and I will consider them in the next section. Fundamentally, guilt involves a sense that one's actions that harmed another were illegitimate. When a person feels guilty, it is not simply the result of an external judgment, i.e. the ruling of a judge, it is also a self-judgment. According to Weiner's attribution theory, guilt stems from an internal attribution for controllable behavior committed by the self that results in an unjustifiable negative outcome for others. The implication being that the guilt-stricken individual feels responsible for the harm. Can a ruthless, cold-blooded murderer find some semblance of guilt buried deep inside the confines of his denying psyche? Can guilt seep through the cracks of decades-long narratives contorted several times over to delude us into a false sense of justification? Or, are the stakes so high that, in addressing such pervasive denial, we undergo a seismic overhaul of our own identity, questioning the moral integrity of every fibre of our being and making our bodies inhospitable for our traumatised psyches? On a microcosmic level, these are the questions the film poses. It does not take long for us to be gripped by abject horror, at the pride with which these seemingly normal men boast of their genocidal flair. Scenes of Anwar Congo, the focal character, showcasing with glowing pride his invention made to expedite the process of killing, leaves us shocked and it takes even less for us to be riddled with questions of guilt. Namely, why is this so lacking? The film raises more questions than answers, as the story of Anwar progresses, the convoluted nature of guilt is something I will dissect. The shocking veneration of such perpetrators in open forums, coupled with their reenactments of real genocidal experiences, evokes a moral awakening erupting from Anwar's very being. Severely lacking in others, new concerns crop up. Is guilt an inescapable consequence of unfathomable actions? or is it fleeting, here today, and gone tomorrow? The mise-en-scene, and the way these perpetrators organise themselves, is hugely important in Anwar's eruption of guilt. A telling scene is that of his neighbour, who tells the story of burying his stepfather. Immediately after, he apologises and says, I promise I'm not criticising you. And while the killers listen attentively, They decide not to include it, since the film will never end. Their incessant desire to appear as heroes is revealed, with Oppenheimer's distanced lens documenting Anwar's conscious decisions on shaping his truth. As McCallandin writes, Oppenheimer includes scenes from Arsan and Amina, as well as discussions amongst the gangsters about how their history should be represented. In order to draw attention to the contrived nature of historical narrative, Oppenheimer distances the viewer from Anwar's representation of history by exposing the process of its construction. In being so distanced, lacking the expected moral narrator, he effectively gives them the rope with which they hang themselves, shown when Anwar plays the victim during the safe confines of his reenactment. With a blindfold over his eyes and a wire around his neck, Anwar becomes visibly disturbed and his hand begins to shake. Herman stops and asks if Anwar can continue, to which he responds, no, I can't do that again. Anwar claims to feel what his victims felt, asserting an affective bond that suggests an effort to internalize the victim in his psychoanalytic framework. As not only a beneficiary of past violence, but also a direct actor responsible, Anwar may have even more reason to internalise, to overcome persistent hauntings. Oppenheimer points out that what your victims felt was far worse because they were dying while you are only acting in a film. Anwar insists on this affective bond, saying, Really, I feel it. And this contrasts starkly with his vision of redemption before the waterfall, where his victims thanked him for sending them to heaven. Here, he refashions himself in order to break away from his bloodied past, and perhaps Oppenheimer makes a hopeful comment on finding redemption in society. Or, perhaps he asks, how are we to deal with a society which blocks this discovery? Would Anwar have unravelled his psyche and overturned his convictions had he not embarked on this endeavour? I argue not. His journey culminates in the overriding force of guilt and raises questions about its nature, complexified by the cinematic blend of fiction and reality. Oppenheimer describes this as trying to vomit up the ghosts that haunt him only to discover that he is the ghost. He is his past, and nothing will come up. There's nothing to come up. He'll never escape himself. His journey of confrontation acts as a jolting force, one which overturns everything he holds true, showing the more you try and hide behind a contrived reality, intricately woven to fantasy, the more guilt will seep through the cracks of your delusion. Perhaps his guilt was always present internally since he was haunted by ghosts, and perhaps the wretching is the culmination of the doubts and nightmares he has referred to throughout the film, supporting how guilt cannot be evaded, even if one has overturned morals. However, we must contrast this with the others blatant disregard for guilt. Adi Zulkadri emphasises how helpless the people were whom they killed, while another talks openly of his routine raping of underage girls. From behind the camera, Oppenheimer asks Adi, by telling yourself it was war, you're not haunted like Anwar, but the Geneva Conventions would define what you did as a war crime. To this, Adi explains why he does not agree interpreting law as a product of those in power. He says that when Bush was in power, Guantanamo was right, concluding that as a winner, he was able to define war crimes for himself. He later responds defiantly and says, I'd go, I don't feel guilty, please get me called to The Hague. Though they endure the same process, they do not appear to have developed any semblance of remorse. Even Anwar himself is a man of contradictions. The same scene which perturbs him is one he takes great pride in and shows off to his grandson. The stark juxtaposition shows him oscillating between brutality and regret, showing guilt as fleeting. Worse still, we are left questioning how genuine this display is and whether it is simply another act in what appears to be an endless play. Such issues are made more pressing by the cinematic style. As a clear distinction between fictional and documentary's representation fails to materialize, we are left questioning how fictitious his displays of guilt truly are. If so, does this make a bleak, condemnatory contribution to our understanding of guilt, suggesting, quite contrary to metaphysical guilt espoused by Jaspers, built on our status as humans, that there are people for whom guilt is contrived. If this is an act, does it mean they should be stripped of their status as a human being, extirpated from the earth, as Arendt suggests? I do not agree, and am more persuaded by Oppenheimer's view that Anwar is trying to run away from what he's done, only at the end to realise no matter how much storytelling he's done, he'll never be able to replace the horror with the fiction, never bridge the gap between his fictional self and the reality of what he's done. To me, he is stuck in a purgatory, since with the passage of time and introspection, he has come to face the horror of his actions, making his body inhospitable for his guilty mind. Optimistic or damning indictment, Oppenheimer is shockingly insightful nonetheless. It is impossible to not see a damning indictment of society in Indonesia and of the world. Sparking a chain reaction of catharsis. In seeing Anwar acknowledge his guilt, the distance we have kept him at, labelling him a murderer with no morality in a detached surrealism of reenactment, quickly dissolves as we humanise him. We sympathise, or even to some extent identify with him, a thought which is frightening. Oppenheimer himself said that. For viewers who have the courage to identify even a tiny bit with Anwar at some point during the movie, the cold dichotomy between good guy and bad guy inevitably collapses and the film becomes a dark mirror held up to all of us, not just the Indonesian regime. We see ourselves in the film and how it's not just Anwar who is damaged by what he's done, but that we are also damaged by the way that we are perpetrators. Does this chart the humanization of a man perceived monstrous, with whom no member of the human race can be expected to want to share the earth with, in Arendt's terms? Is this a moral condemnation of Anwar as a microcosm for Indonesian society where such men prevail, and by extension of society as a whole, seeing as we are all complicit does it culminate in a realization that if he is human a byproduct of society then we also have it in us to be the next one such is the domino effect casting doubt on questions of complicity for us all cynically changing our perceptions of guilt from being cast outwardly at someone else to being inwardly reflected upon Perhaps the film suggests that some crimes are beyond redemption, that no matter how much guilt one feels, peace and reconciliation can never be found. Oppenheimer described Anwar's retching as him choking on the terror that comes when you look at the abyss between yourself and your image of yourself. Poignantly capturing what is morally at stake in confrontation, the crushing loss of of one's own self. However, I choose to remain more hopeful, believing a man who experiences guilt and addresses his denial for the first time endures a seismic overhaul due to its novelty. I choose to interpret his retching as a physical repulsion at reality, suggesting some moral vestige remains in even the worst recesses of humanity. If this view is taken, then reconciliation and forgiveness can be accomplished for even the worst criminals. The earlier damning indictment of society becomes more hopeful to suggest we can also confront our denial, or our guilt to regain a sense of morality, a sense of ourselves. For this reason, the film has been applauded for its global resonance and has been instrumental for encouraging social change. 55 years on from the genocide, this film has been eye-opening for countless countries and viewers previously unaware of its existence and has initiated conversation on reconciliation processes for the future. Maybe this is the first step towards addressing the state structures that breed impunity. Towards punishing the perpetrators guilty for uprooting innumerable lives. Towards achieving justice for the victims who have suffered to no end. Only time will tell. But until then, mass murderers will continue to roam freely. The memory of a nation continue to be a web of lies and denial. While justice remains nowhere to be found.